This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Jennifer Dubois, the recipient of a 2013 Whiting Writers Award and a 2012 National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 Award. Her debut novel, Partial History of Lost Causes, was the winner of the California Book Award for First Fiction and was also a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Prize for Debut Fiction. Her second and most recent novel, Cartwheel, has been nominated for a New York Public Library Young Lions Award. Cartwheel's premise was inspired by the Amanda Knox trial. It centers on a college student, Lily Hayes, who is studying abroad in Buenos Aires. She is arrested for the murder of her roommate. The story is told from four points of view, including Lily's, her boyfriend Sebastian, her father Andrew, and the prosecutor Eduardo. The novel goes back and forth in time, and the first chapter is from the father's point of view. He is on the plane over to Argentina after Lily's been charged with murder. Dubois and I began our discussion talking about her interest in telling this story and how she decided where to start the novel. It was kind of you know, inspired less directly by the Amanda Knox trial than sort of inspired by a certain set of questions that I sort of found myself preoccupied with as I as I sort of followed that case kind of casually. I was really very interested in the ways that I noticed people really coming to very divided conclusions about Amanda Knox in, in that case, um, and also the sort of profound certainty that these conclusions then tended to um, be characterized. By so it it sort of seemed like a lot of people looked into that case and felt very very sure of of one thing, and a lot of people looked into it and and felt very very sure of something else. And I was very interested in that, especially when I started to notice how much that certainty and those conclusions tended to be uh, inflected by kind of broader questions having to do with you know issues of gender, issues of class, issues of you know, privilege and, and race and American entitlement and sort of anti-American resentment, it, it sort of seemed like the opinions that people had about this case were, were very much, you know, reliant on sort of opinions or ideas or notions that were a lot bigger than the case itself. And so that's, sort of, I was so curious about that, that, you know, once I sort of noticed that I'm like deeply curious about something for a long enough time now, I sort of you know, I sort of start to wonder if that's not maybe something that I'm kind of interested in, in possibly a fictional or, you know, kind of exploring in, in a novelistic way. And so that was sort of where Cartwheel came from, was my interest in trying to sort of investigate how it is that people, different people with, you know, armed with the same information and armed with their, you know, their own sort of uh, own logic and their own sort of good faith can look at the same thing and really see wildly different things and, you know, sort of interested in creating a character who kind of might serve as kind of a template, you know, onto which these different interpretations could be projected. And then, so then where to start the book? That's an interesting question because I actually wrote Cartwheel sort of just in this out of order muddle. Like I, I knew that it was really important to have multiple points of view and that I wanted to kind of explore the, the perspective of, of at least one person who was very, very convinced of Lily's innocence, which, it, you know, in the novel is Andrew, her father. And then 
at least one person who's very, very convinced, equally convinced of her guilt, which is Eduardo, the prosecutor. Um, and I knew I wanted Lily's point of view in there as as well, but I also um, didn't didn't want the um, book to be about who committed the murder. You know, I wanted it to be much more kind of an investigation of um, how people look at the same things and see and see different things. So then I was sort of dealing with multiple timelines, with sort of a before the, the crime and after the crime timeline, and I was um, then introduced this this fourth point of view of Sebastian, who's Lily's sort of next door neighbor slash kind of unfortunate love interest, and I, I thought that it was interesting to introduce a character whose uh, allegiance or lack thereof to Lily wasn't as preordained as her father's or the prosecutor's. And and so then I was I sort of was writing these like four different points of view in multiple timelines, and I just had this pile of pages that was kind of out of order, and I wasn't quite sure what was going to come first or what order it was going to to go in. But um, with a lot of sort of uh, guessing and, and testing and sort of failed attempts to sort of shuffle the book together into something like a structure, uh, and with the help of my my agent, it, it sort of before the crime and after the crime structure kind of emerged. And um, at that point, the idea of kind of starting with Andrew's arrival in Buenos Aires after the crimes occurred, after Lily has been accused, and then sort of moving forward to that timeline before flashing back to before would be, you know, hopefully kind of an interesting way to, to organize things. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jennifer Dubois, author of the novel Cartwheel. So once you committed and started writing and you had all these questions that were instigated by the Amanda Knox situation, did you then try to turn that off? Did you try to stop paying attention to that? Yeah, I did. I mean, it was Really, the the thing you know, I I sort of followed the case not particularly you know closely, but you know some, and then I sort of noticed myself thinking about these questions, and and you know, like oddly enough, I think part of what interest what really got me interested was like less the reading about the case than reading like the comments about the case. Like, and I read like an online story and just noticing the sort of righteousness and sort of the certainty that was reflected in people's weighing in on this thing. So it was it was not really my thinking about the case per se. It was kind of thinking about this this question that got me that got me going. And so then I I did sort of try to stay away from it more after I started writing because it wasn't really about the case, and I didn't you know I didn't want to sort of get stuff in like you know get like little stuff mixed in by accident um, too much. But I also wasn't in any kind of like you know, media blackout about it. Um, but I just, I certainly wasn't looking to the case for for guidance about the, the book or for, you know, particularly ideas about what to do with the book. At that point, I was sort of more interested in kind of running with that um, blank slate character idea. 
The structure of the book is it is told from four points of view. Lily, the accused murderer, Eduardo, the prosecutor, Sebastian, her boyfriend slash neighbor, and Lily's father. Sometimes you describe the same scene from both points of view. Maybe you'll do a scene from Lily's point of view and then Sebastian. So you see how one series of factual events can then be reinterpreted really differently. I'm wondering what you maybe learned by doing that. Oh, that's such an interesting question. Yeah, I think that it it sort of, in a way, I think I kind of indulged my worst um, fears about sort of the, the extent to which I think people can misunderstand each other. And I think that it's always helpful and sort of frightening to remember that you know, when when we are thinking about ourselves and our own lives and our own actions, you know, we, we know what we do, but we also know what, like what we mean to do. We know what we say, but we also know what we meant to say. And we sort of know the all the mitigating information and sort of the spirit in which we, you know, tr- tried to do whatever we did. And other people only, turns out, have access to sort of what goes on, you know, outside of us. And I think that sometimes for everybody, there's sort of a big a big gap between kind of their inner life or their intention and what and what winds up happening. And for some people, that gap is bigger than for others. And um, particularly, Sebastian was kind of an interesting character to sort of explore in, in that way, because although he's, you know, not um, the subject of a criminal investigation, he has great difficulty kind of behaving or uh, on the basis of his own actual feelings or his own actual desires or sort of inner life. He, he's sort of reflexively kind of half ironic and sort of has this like stance that he kind of can't quite shake even if he even if he wants to and so he he just sort of is is incapable of kind of making himself understood as as well as he might be and I and I thought that it was kind of interesting to sort of explore that that too you know to not just sort of have it all be about the gap between Lily's intention and what is seen or sort of the ways in which she's misunderstood, but also give her a chance to misunderstand the people around her in in turn, because um, I think we're all kind of simultaneously misunderstood and misunderstanding all the time to to varying degrees. And I think it's sort of a harrowing thing to think about, but I think it's it's useful in, in terms of trying to extend a little bit more compassion to the people around you and also to try to be kind of more realistic about, um, the fact that you know nobody but you like knows your inner life and so um you know we all kind of have to just sort of deal with the externals and kind of go from there and what about the culpability of parents you know in these situations it seemed like you were looking at that a little bit i'm wondering what you came out thinking about that what you explored in your own mind as you wrote this yeah, it's it's interesting. I think that um, you know, one thing I was very struck by as I was thinking about this book, and and one thing that I was very struck by back when I was first thinking about um, or kind of following the Amanda Knox case was um, sort of just this question of how any of us would look if we sort of worked backward to our lives from the premise that we had committed a, a crime. Um, so, if anybody, if we were told, you know, okay, this person X you know, killed, killed this person. Now, like, given that, let's, let's look back for the clues of like where things went wrong. It sort of strikes me that anybody's life would probably yield some, some moments or some episodes that could be kind of cobbled into 
you know, or harnessed in service of, of that, you know, narrative. And so that's kind of what, what happens with, with Lily. So, for example, in, in the book, there's this, you know, incident where when she was you know, seven, she and her little friend, you know, kill a banana slug sort of with this intention of it being some sort of, you know, scientific inquiry. And and it's one of these little episodes that, you know, had she not, not ever been accused of a crime, would kind of never have had any meaning or any content at all. But then given that she's later sort of accused of this crime, then, you know, some people are sort, sort of look back at that and wonder if that's not, you know, the sort of dawning moment of, sort of sociopathy that you can kind of point to. And I think with the parents, it winds up being the same thing where, you know, they don't, Lily's parents certainly don't believe that she's guilty, but they do believe that something's gone wrong. I think in some ways they feel that she's perhaps brought this on herself as too strong a, a way to describe it, but they sort of, um, and Andrew especially sort of, feels that she must have been sort of conducting herself in some way that was kind of inviting trouble um, in order to have gotten herself in this mess. And then I think they both kind of look back at their own parenting and, and sort of look for, you know, well, something went wrong, so what? So where did it go wrong? And I think that, I think Andrew and Maureen are actually I I think both very good very good parents as it goes and very like loving and attentive and you know maybe a little too kind of tolerant and like lax and indulgent in, in some ways but really you know as, as it goes in the grand scheme of things I think they're probably pretty good parents and and yet like any um, parent or like anybody um, if you're working back from the conclusion that something's gone wrong you know. You're, you're sure going to find, you know, some, some possible moments that you might sort of point to and sort of look at in a more kind of sinister light um, if, you're, if you're working from that uh, sort of operating premise. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jennifer Dubois, author of the novel Cartwheel. Well, this book contains so many themes about guilt and history and who we are as human beings in the world. And I'm wondering, as you were writing, if you learned anything about how you felt about some of these topics or if you changed your mind about how you think about them? I think one thing, I mean, I wouldn't say I like learned this, but I was definitely kind of, I think, meditating on this in the process of writing the book was um, just sort of the the extent to which most most people do contain the capacity for good and also the capacity for, for callousness, um, which is not the same thing as the capacity for, you know, for murder. But but I did, um, I really wanted very much to leave readers with a sense that, um, y- you know, even if they come to believe that really did, did commit this crime, that they don't necessarily see her as, as a person who's sort of like complete like monster or someone who's alien utterly um from them and similarly if they if they come to believe that she's innocent of this crime that doesn't mean that they have to see her as sort of saintly or somebody who, who's never had sort of a, a moment of, of aggression because i think that especially with everybody but especially with with women there is sort of that um kind of ten, tendency to erect sort of false dichotomies and that you know if if this this person you know ha- has ever had like a fleeting like moment of of, of callousness or of or of sort of minor cruelty and that this sort of means something fundamental about their about their nature. Um, so I wanted 
just all the characters to sort of seem that, you know, to feel like they contain sort of both, um, both of those, uh, both the capacity for good and, and the capacity for, um, for doing wrong. And, and also I wanted to sort of explore the extent to which whether what we do is good or bad, you know, has a lot to do with sort of the context in which it's done and also the information that, that we have, you know, so Ed, Eduardo, the prosecutor, um, you know, if you come to the conclusion that Lily is, is innocent, then, you know, a lot of what he does is, is, is not, is not good, but he's operating very sincerely, um, out of the information that he has and sort of out of the belief that, that he has. And so whether what he, and, you know, if, if Lily is guilty, then what he's doing is, is virtuous. And so, um, really the nature of, he's doing the same thing, but the nature of what he's doing kind of, um, changes depending on what the truth, um, of the matter really, really is that, and he only knows what he thinks and believes that it is. And so I wanted to explore that too, the ways in which, you know, not only do people contain both of these, um, the potential for both, you know, good and, and, and bad, um, action, but also, um, whether what they do is good or bad, you know, sometimes that hinges on questions that they don't know the answers to, um, entirely. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jennifer Dubois, author of the novel Cartwheel. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you or speaks to you as a writer? I think these are passages that made me, like, as an earlier reader, you know, in high school and college, really impressed upon me the particular capacity that the novel has to sort of break your heart in a very like particular way by kind of showing us more than than characters can always know themselves. So this comes from Michael Chabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And this section in The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay strangely sort of seems to uh, di- sort of diagnose for me kind of exactly what that, um, that magic is in a, in a novel. A surprising fact about the magician Bernard Kornblum, Joe remembered, was that he believed in magic not in the so-called magic of candles, pentagrams, and bat wings, not in the kitchen enchantments of Slavic grandmothers with their herbiaries and pairings from the little toe of a blind virgin tied up in a goatskin bag, not in the astrology, theosophy, chiromancy, dousing rods, seances, weeping statues, werewolves, wonders, or miracles. All these cornbloom had regarded as fakery far different, far more destructive than the brand of illusion he practiced, whose success, after all, increased in direct proportion to his audience's constant, keen awareness that, in spite of all the vigilance they could bring to bear, they were being deceived. What bewitched Bernard Kornblum, on the contrary, was the impersonal magic of life, when he read in a magazine about a fish that could disguise itself as any one of seven different varieties of sea bottom, or when he learned from a newsreel that scientists had discovered a dying star that emitted radiation on a wavelength whose value in megacycles approximated pi. In the realm of human affairs, this type of enchantment was often, though not always, a spatter business, sometimes beautiful, sometimes cruel. Here, its stock in trade was ironies, coincidences, and the only true portents, those that revealed themselves unmistakable and impossible to ignore in retrospect. Um, and I think I loved that passage when I first read it um, in, in college, and I think partly it sort of identified for me exactly what I find sort of mystical about um, about fiction writing. You know, one thing, the kind of brand of illusion 
you know, whose success is contingent on the audience's awareness of being um, deceived, I think, is, is a great way of kind of identifying the, the sort of magic trick of, of fiction or, or of theater or of any, of any art form that, um, you know, we, we know is, is not real and yet, you know, we, we, are, we allow ourselves or, you know, if, if we can, um, if the artist is, is doing their, their job right, you know, we, we, are, we are convinced that in some way um, it, it sort of is real. We're persuaded of its reality while knowing that it's, um, that it's not. And, and then also this, that line about sort of the only true portents is that, revealing, that reveal themselves in retrospect, I think, um, that's also the, the sort of um, the sort of thing that I think novels can, you know, sort of show us in kind of heartbreaking uh, precision. And it's kind of I think often the only way we ever get to sort of see that as we look at sort of a lifespan or as we look at um, you know the dynamics between multiple multiple people. We don't always um, get to see the portents in our own lives, and um, the novel can show us those in, in characters' lives. How about something that you wrote that it could be something that you found hard to write or something that changed or something you feel you succeeded at? So I have a little section from Eduardo's point of view. And Eduardo was just the most challenging character for me to write um, because his premises in terms of how he thinks and how he looks at the world are the most different from mine. And, And because the book is so much about how the characters see things, those premises and his sort of way of thinking had to be really kind of thoroughly explored. You know, you, I, I couldn't just sort of say like, well, he, he, you know, he thinks she's guilty. So like, let's, let's just move on. You know, it, it really kind of had to, to sort of dwell in both why he thinks that and also why he cares so much. And so this is a little section sort of about his um, backstory of becoming a lawyer. At least Eduardo knew his work would not suffer In the very precise triage system he'd set up within his life, work was the most critical priority. And on his better depressed days, Eduardo didn't so much as snap out of his sadness as sink into it. It contracted in his chest like a heart, giving him some propulsive force as he moved through an investigation. This compulsion to work could sometimes feel congenital, genetic, though in fact Eduardo had not originally wanted to be a lawyer. He had studied piano as a teenager and had hoped to continue in college, right up until the day he watched Julio Cesar Strasseras deliver closing remarks in the trial of the Juntas. It was 1985 and Eduardo was 16. He had been practicing Mozart's sonata in F major for a school recital that would later be canceled due to bomb threats, and his time with the school's piano was limited, but but still he went to the bar across the street to watch. Never again, said Strasseras. The television cut to footage of the mothers testifying. The bar around Eduardo smelled sour, and the man next to him was crying. One of the mothers looked straight into the camera. What has happened cannot be fixed, she said. It can only be told. On her face was an expression of righteous sadness, a grief well beyond weeping. And suddenly Eduardo understood, with shocking and fatal clarity, that she was not trying to get her child back. This thought had never really occurred to him before. It has to be dead, the woman was saying. But they are only truly disappeared if we turn away. They are only really gone once we stop looking for them. Standing before the television, Mozart's Allegro still throbbing in his fingertips, Eduardo had felt himself rising to a grave and difficult understanding. Perhaps this was only because he'd been looking for one. He was, after all, 16. 
but whatever the reason, he'd known that he was seeing something he could not forget. He was learning that goodness could not be goodness if it was dimensionless and passive. He was beginning to believe that there was a compassion beyond compassion. Eduardo looked at the mother's face, and he saw that forgiveness without justice was not Christ's forgiveness or any other kind worth extending. He walked out into the blazing sun and did not return to the piano that day, though he could not now remember where he went. I decided to read that passage because because Eduardo was such a challenging character for me, and, and in this passage, I, I feel like I finally kind of figured out some important things about him. I think one of the risks with him as a character was kind of making this Javert-like figure who has kind of just got this punitive obsession, and I think it was important for me to sort of think about him as somebody who perhaps had other desires or other ambitions that had kind of been, been called to this work in a, in a way that kind of resonated specifically with his kind of socio-political, historical, you know, moments, sort of the, the context of growing up at a, at a time when attention was really on the the sort of um, ineffable value of, of uncovering the truth, even after, you know, even after a bad outcome has, has occurred, that, that there's something that we still sort of owe to to victims, um, even after they're gone. And, and also tying that sense into his religious faith in a way that was, I hope, not reductive, because I, I it, it felt important to me that he be a character with, with some um, religious belief, but it felt equally important to me that his behavior not be kind of crudely motivated only by that belief. And so I, I think that in thinking about his backstory, that was sort of an important passage where I, I think I sort of unpacked those things and, and kind of developed um, the relationship between all those working parts that kind of, that I then sort of used going going forward in thinking about him. Where do you write? At my desk in my house, <laughs> my apartment. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, the problem lately has been more how do I get away from other things to, to write, but um, when I'm doing a lot of writing, I like to you know make sure I'm going out on, on walks or kind of getting out in the world and getting out of my head, and also art that's not um, anything to do with, with text or language, so um, you know music and, and theater and um, visual art. Um, sometimes I think my life can become very much about words, so sometimes I like to remind myself that there are other, other things. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? At this point, I, I don't tend to show my work to people until it's pretty far along, but I have a couple of very dear friends and readers from graduate school who I, um, you know, definitely sort of can turn to and, and you know, dump, dump my novels on. Um, and I feel very lucky to, to have that, have those readers. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, I, I think that probably the, the most... Um, serious kinds of rejection for me wound up not really quite being rejection as much as sort of the strange like deflating disappointment that comes when your first book comes out and you kind of think that somehow your life will be or you as an artist will be somehow like transformed in some way that you don't quite know ahead of time um, and then and then at least in my case you know sort of that that didn't happen and that was sort of, you know weirdly deflating and disappointing especially since I wasn't quite sure what I had, you know, thought like the Wizard of Oz was going to come or something. But I think that for me, always the thing that's the most important is just rem- remembering that writing is really its own consolation. You know, it's something that, and I think there are some things in, in life um, that are are really ends in and of themselves and not and not means to end. And so, if you love to write, then writing is kind of its 
its own reward already, regardless of what else ever happens. And and that's you know that's the most sort of sustaining and fundamental joy of of the endeavor, and one one of the most sustaining joys of of my life. And I think that whenever I'm discouraged, I always re- remind myself of that, and also I remind myself of the fact that that's the part of it that is that can't be taken away from you. Kind of like you can have terrible luck, and um, you can have nasty Goodreads reviews, or you can have, you know, rejections. Um, But no matter what's going on around you or what's happening, the joy that you take from your sort of own, like, personal encounter with with writing is something that is sort of, you know, only only yours and and can't and can't go away. And what is your favorite word? I had to look up how to pronounce this because it's not, it's not actually my favorite word, but I'm always learning new words that I encounter in um, books I read. And um, one that I found recently that I liked was um, Sibylline, which I guess means like other relating to like oracles, I believe. (laughs) I think I found that in Nabokov somewhere. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Jennifer Dubois, author of the novel Cartwheel. You can follow First Draft on Facebook, just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.